uh, tonight we are going to be looking at the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Um, this day actually, it's actually just over. Uh, it, it concluded at sundown. It would have been sundown last night and then most of today. Ending at sundown today, uh, we looked a little bit a couple Sundays ago that the, uh, the Jewish day runs from evening to evening. We'll see that again tonight. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 23. So I'm going to ask that you would all turn there. Uh, and we're going to rise and uh, read. We'll be beginning in verse 26 of Leviticus 23. We're also going to be in Leviticus 16 tonight. But we'll start with verse 23. You'll remember that we, we covered most of this two Sundays ago as we looked at this entire chapter actually lays out the, the seven feasts, the calendar year, the ceremonial year for the feasts and for the nation of Israel. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this day, he shall be cut off from among his people. As for any person who does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual state throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening from the evening until you shall keep your Sabbath. You can be seated. Lord, thank you so much for your precious word to us. And uh, we are excited tonight to uh, dig into another of, of one of your holy days, holidays, Lord, as we see these instituted by you, commanded by you. And there's such a richness and, and a meaning to them, especially as we look at Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the work that he has completed in the spring feast and what he will still yet to do within the fall feast. We ask you to be with us this evening. Help us to understand your word, Lord. Give us your Holy Spirit to help us to discern. I pray that the word would sink deep into our hearts, Lord, that we would grow closer to you, that we would know you better and really understand your purposes um, for all that you have commanded and your purposes even in our own lives, Lord. May you be uh, glorified in the hearing of your word, and, and I pray again that we would be doers of the word, that when we leave from here, that we would be changed, that there would be some sort of an effect. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, here we are on the, the 10th of Tishri. Uh, this is the first uh, month on the ceremonial Hebrew calendar. Uh, actually, again, I guess technically now that the sun's down, we're into the 11th day. So scrap that. We're a little bit late. We're a few minutes late as we're going through uh, this feast tonight. You just missed it. Had you come before sundown, you would have been able to participate. So uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, um, it really means uh, the day of covering. Uh, yom in Hebrew is the word for day. Atonement um, is the word kafar, and it means to cover, to cover something up. Uh, you'll remember from Exodus 32, just a few weeks ago, as we were reading through, Pastor Michael was teaching, and Moses comes down um, from the mountain as he, as he hears from God that the people have turned to idolatry. They've made the golden calf, and he sees what happened, and he, he goes back up the mountain. He says, maybe I can make atonement for your sins. Maybe I can cover the great sin that you have, uh, that you have perpetrated, the great sin that had happened there. 
Now, it's interesting to note that there's some evidence uh, in Scripture and with some other writings that suggest that that particular day uh, that that event happened in Exodus 32 actually fell on the date of atonement. Um, So I will leave some further study to you. But really quick, um, we have a few time markers in Scripture that let us know this. So we know that the beginning of the calendar from a ceremonial perspective began in the month of Nisan, the 14th and then the 15th of the month would have been the Passover. And that's when the Jewish people fled from Egypt. So we know from a historical perspective, it was the 15th day of the first month that was in Exodus 13, we saw that happen. Then sometime the following week, uh, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it starts actually immediately after. Uh, But then the following Sabbath, after that feast. So you have Passover, you have a seven-day feast. The following Sabbath after that, wherever it happened to fall, that's when we begin the countdown for the Feast of Weeks. Again, we talked a little bit about that two Sundays ago. From there, we count 50 days to Pentecost, 50 days to Pentecost. So again, we have a little bit of a time marker. And then as we continue on in Exodus, uh, we know that that's when the the law was given. That's the the belief there. That's Exodus uh, 16. And then even in 19, we have another mention. And then after that, Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He receives the two tablets, Exodus 24 and Deuteronomy 9, if you're taking notes. He comes down, he sees the worship of the the golden calf, he breaks the tablets, and then he spends a second period of 40 days and 40 nights. So we actually see from scripture, uh, again, I'm not going to go super deep, but there's a a window of time from when they first left Egypt, from Passover, of 187 days. That is when the 10th of Tishri, the Day of Atonement, fell. So it was 187 days after the Passover, after they left Egypt. And it's very likely that that event and Moses going up and saying that he was going to make atonement for the people was actually this day. And then this was commanded perhaps to remind the Israelites of their sin, of their great national sin. So an interesting thing to note, again, I will leave that more for your study. As uh, Alistair Begg often says, you're sensible people, you can figure this out for yourselves. So I will leave that to you. You can uh, take a look at that. So if this timeline is is valid, let's keep that in mind. The Day of Atonement is really a a reminder of this colossal failure failure of the Israelites. Now, the Day of Atonement is really known as a very solemn day. So we looked um, at the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. It was a little bit more of a celebratory feast. To this one, not so much. Um, This feast is, remember, at the very end of the 10 days of awe that we talked about. And the 10 days of awe were were days of repentance and introspection and and prayer, um, repenting of all of the sins from the last year. So it really is a very somber time as we talk about the Day of Atonement. So from the Jewish uh, perspective, these 10 days end with today. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it was the belief that the book of life was opened. And we talked about the book of life for the the righteous, for the wicked, and the book of life for those that were in between. Those are the the three books that are commonly believed uh, that would be open. And on this day, the book of life gets closed. Ten days was that that time period for repentance. And um, it's interesting to note as well that the book of life was also connected uh, back in Exodus 32 when Moses says to the people, 
He says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But now go, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. So the judgment that was seen um, by God amongst these people was really a judgment for their sin, for the sin that was committed by the people. Now, I think today that we have a little bit of a different picture of sin than what the Bible talks about. I think we have a light view of sin, and that might be a, a common belief throughout the church. Sometimes we just think that sin is just simply, well, we did something wrong. And at its core, that's exactly what it is, but it's a lot more grievous than that. My wife and I have a two-year-old daughter, and we're slowly starting to teach her the concept of sin. We know that um, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and especially a two-year-old tends to sin a lot more than, let's say, a one-month-old or a two-month-old or a three-month-old. And as we've seen her grow and progress, we've noticed that sin is a lot more apparent uh, and that it definitely comes from within. But what we're trying to teach her is that sin is basically when you do something that God doesn't want you to do. That's kind of the extent of what we're able to teach her right now, because for her at two years old, that's really all her brain can understand. But sin, brothers and sisters, is really a lot bigger problem than that. And I hope you see the picture in that. It's not something that we simply can just go, oh, well, I I just made a mistake today. Oh, I I just committed a little bit of a a faux pas. Everything's going to be okay. But by and large, I think even uh, in in the church, certainly in the culture, but especially in the church, we see that. And sometimes we, uh, I don't want to say we sweep it under the rug, but we just don't really give it the weight that it is. But it was a big problem um, in this time. And and really, sin is a a tremendous offense against a holy God, an all-powerful God. But God, in his mercy, in his grace, and in his love, he gave us a provision for that. He gave us a provision for sin to deal with the problem of sin, really, And that is a sacrifice. Sacrifices were given, were made to cover sin. This is God's plan. This is what he had instituted. Now, you've heard, I know, from uh, this pulpit even many, many times that uh, when sacrifices were going on, maybe specifically on the Passover, there were, you know, thousands and thousands of lambs being slaughtered. It was not a pretty scene at all. It's not something that we would uh, necessarily raise our hand and say, oh, I, I want to see that. I, I'd love to see a bunch of animals be killed. But that's essentially what's going on. And we don't have this picture in our mind today. With no temple, with no sacrificial system, I don't think that we understand the gravity of sin and really the repercussions from sin. But imagine, uh, if you will, hopefully you have strong stomach since you had dinner a little while ago, but just imagine many, many animals being sacrificed. Imagine them perhaps crying out in pain, seeing blood spilled across the, uh, the, the temple courts, or whether this was in the, the tabernacle, depending on which time period we're looking at. But just imagine that. A lot of us are probably squeamish with blood. How many don't really like to see the, the sight? I don't really mind it per se, but it's not something that I necessarily sign up for that I, I say that I want to go and see. So again, just, just picture this this event going on, that animals being literally slaughtered right in front of you, cries and screams and and blood, and and there may be even piled up if there's many, depending on the day, depending on the holiday, what was going on. And what we see from this is that sin is messy, that the aftermath of sin specifically is messy. That covering was a messy process. And today in our lives, we sometimes commit sin 
and there's often messy consequences. We don't have sacrifices today, of course, but sometimes what's left behind is a little bit of a, a messy scene. Now, the idea of a blood sacrifice is also really, really important in Scripture. We see it all throughout, all the way back in, uh, in Genesis with Adam and Eve even. We see it in Genesis 3. We see it in Genesis 4 um, with Cain and Abel and the offerings that were made there. But even at the very first committed sin in history with, with Adam and Eve, it doesn't expressly say, but it says after the sin that God clothed them with the garment of an animal, with skin. There was a sacrifice that was made in order for them to be clothed. And so as we look through Exodus, even specifically here on Wednesday nights, we've seen this process of atonement. We've seen sacrifices um, be named and be listed. And there were many, many ones. But tonight, of course, we are looking specifically at the Day of Atonement and one specific sacrifice. Now, blood sacrifice specifically was a big part of this. Leviticus 17 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And Hebrews 9 picks up on this and quotes it and adds a little bit more. It says, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verses I'm sure familiar to you all. But from the very beginning, we see that this means of atonement was God's plan. He provided a way, he made a way, and it was really the redemption, the covering for those that had broken his most holy laws. We're going to turn back to Leviticus 16, uh, just a few chapters. We are going to um, do a flyover of the whole chapter, believe it or not. I figured if Pastor Michael could tackle a whole chapter of 1 Kings on Sunday, why not endeavor to tackle a whole chapter of Leviticus? So Leviticus 16 is actually the commands for the priest for the Day of Atonement, where Leviticus 23 are the commands for the people and how they to... Uh, how they are to observe the day. Leviticus 16 is going to be the command specifically for the priest and the order of the sacrifice and how it was going to be carried out. So we are going to do a very, 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 that's three varies, fast flyover of this chapter with just a brief uh, exegesis. So we're going to look at the overview first, Leviticus 16 Verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. That's Leviticus 10, if you're interested. They offered up a strange fire before the Lord. Talked a little bit about that, I don't know, a month or two back. I did a message on the altar of incense, and we went through that. Verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now the text says holy place here, but, but we've learned recently that it was called the Holy of Holies, where the ark was. No coincidence that we've just been studying through the book of Exodus for the last, I don't know, 10 years now it seems like. But it's really neat that we've been, we've been able to do that because it gives us such a, a richer picture of the text that's before us tonight. So on the mercy seat, it says um, God will meet with them. That was the very presence of God actually was thought to rest on this mercy seat, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The, the word translated mercy seat is the Hebrew word kaparet, which might sound familiar. It's similar to the word kafar, to cover. It's a little bit of a variation of kafar, kaparet. And it's literally the cover of the Ark. It was the, the top seal that enclosed it. We know that there were things placed inside of the Ark. There was Aaron's rod. There was the manna. 
and there were the two stone tablets. But the covering was referred to as the mercy seat. Verse 3 says, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So two offerings listed, a bull and a ram. Uh, For those that want further study, Numbers 29 actually gives a full list of offerings for this specific day, for the Day of Atonement. That's Numbers 29. Verse 4, he shall put on a holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. You recall back in Exodus 28, we took a look at all of the garments for the high priest and rich meaning and rich detail went into all of those. That was the garment that he used for normal sacrifices day in and day out, but this one is different. It's going to be a white linen tunic, white linen undergarments, white linen sash, and white turban, all white representing purity of the priest as he went into the Holy of Holies to perform this duty. Now, imagine plain white garments for slaughtering sacrifices, like I mentioned earlier. A lot of us get a little nervous when we see a few white t-shirts and white clothes. We get nervous when we go out for an Italian meal, right? We don't wear white because we don't want to spill any uh, marinara sauce on it. But imagine sacrificing animals, slaughtering animals in these white garments. It says he was also to bathe uh, a mikvah in Hebrew, a a ritual bath, a ritual cleaning, ceremonially uh, making him clean for the service that he was about to perform. He would actually perform this changing uh, of the outfit and the bath some five times throughout this day as he went in and out um, of the holy place. Verse 5, he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. So the first offering, the bull, was for Aaron. It was to cover his sin. He had to be cleansed first. He had to be holy in the eyes of God before he could enter in and then perform the sacrifice on behalf of the people, on behalf of the nation. Verse 7, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So two goats were brought into the court area. They were presented before the Lord. They were placed in front of the priest and side by side that they would be there. The high priest would approach and he would cast lots for them. Now, a little bit of conjecture on exactly what this is, but there's some historical writings that say that they were actually golden. Of course, everything in the the temple service and tabernacle service was these holy vessels, but golden lots. There would have been a golden bowl and then the golden lot. That's the name of the thing inside. Could have been something shaped like a stone or maybe like a stick. And inscribed upon it were two words. One was for the Lord and one said, for the the scapegoat. In Hebrew, it's for Azazel, A-Z-A-Z-E-L. And the Lord would approach this this golden vessel, and he would stick his hands in blindly, if you will. He would pull out the, the lot, so he didn't know which was which, and he'd place them to the head of the goats. One would be marked for the Lord, one would be marked for 
Azazel. Now, a little debate on the meaning of Azazel. Some say it's a reference to Satan. There's uh, some Jewish tradition that holds that Azazel was the name of a fallen angel, and therefore they associate that to Satan. But most believe that the word was derived from the Hebrew word Azel. Azel, which means to go away or to depart. But it also carries the idea of escape. And if we follow this idea along, this is where the idea of the scapegoat came in. It was the goat that escaped being slaughtered, that escaped being offered up for the Lord. It's interesting to note that both goats together were viewed as one singular offering. It was one offering to the Lord. One would be led to slaughter. One would be cast out into the wilderness. And there's a neat picture that kind of struck me here as I was studying. So you have the high priest with the lots in his hand, and he holds them up to the, to the heads of the, the goats as he's going to basically assign one for the Lord, one for Azazel. So we have three players, if you will, in this picture. We have the high priest. We have the goat that would be offered to the Lord as the sin offering. And then we have the scapegoat that would be cast out into the wilderness. And Jesus, brothers and sisters, fulfills all of these three beautifully. We know that Jesus is our high priest. We know that Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But Jesus was also the scapegoat that took upon the sins of the people. Isaiah 53 tells us, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows we, he, excuse me, he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Words familiar to you all. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall upon him. Our sins were transferred to him, much like were transferred onto the scapegoat as he was led out into the wilderness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 further tells us, He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, both of the goats, by the way, you're familiar, had to be perfect. They had to be unblemished, spotless, pure, just like our Lord. He fulfilled that perfectly. Now we get into the actual acts of the sacrifices. So the first was a little bit of an overview. Now the actual act in and of itself. And we're going to begin with the atonement for the priests in verse 11. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Again, it's for him but, and for his household. It was also uh, significant for the priesthood as a whole. So the high priest, but all of the priests that were in the uh, tabernacle or temple area, it was to forgive their sins. First, what happens is he slaughters the bull outside of the, the holy place. But before he does that, he puts his hands on the head of the bull and he confesses his sins over that bull. And three times during the course of this, he invokes the covenant name of God, YHWH, you know, commonly thought of as, as Yahweh sometimes uh, as Jehovah. Now, this word is prohibited to be said uh, amongst the Israelites, amongst the Jewish people. This was the only time that that could actually verbally be said. And the reason for that is they didn't want to butcher the name. They didn't want to say it wrong or they didn't want to profane it because to profane the name of God 
uh, would carry the sentence of death. So this was the only time of year that God's name was actually used. And there's some records that say that as the priest said the name, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, that the other priests and even the other people around, they would bow down, they would prostrate themselves on their face, and they proclaim, blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. So he, he slaughters the bull, and in verse 12 it says, he shall take a firepan full of coals, of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the Ark of the Testimony. Otherwise, he will die. Reading from a commentary uh, on the Day of Atonement, Alexander McLaren writes this, the white-robed priest took a censer of burning embers from the altar before the tent door and two hands full of incense. And thus laden, he passed into the tabernacle. How the silent crowd in the outer court would watch the last flutter of white robes as it was lost in the gloom within. He passed through the holy place, which on every day but this was the limit of his approach. But on this day, he lifted the curtain. He entered into the dark chamber where the glory flashed from the golden walls and rested above the ark. Would not his heart beat faster as he laid his hand on the heavy veil and caught the first gleam of light that came from the Shekinah glory of God? As soon as he entered, he was to cast the incense into the censer that the fragrant cloud might cover the mercy seat. Incense is the symbol of prayer. And that curling cloud is a picture of the truth that the purest of men, even the anointed priest, the high priest, robed in white, who has offered sacrifices daily all the year round and today has anxiously obeyed all the commands of ceremonial cleanliness can only draw near to God as a supplicant, not entering there as having a right of access, but as an entrance of undeserved mercy beseeched through prayer. The incense did not cover the glory that Aaron might not gaze upon it, but it covered him that God might not look on his sin. So most likely the high priest goes in, he actually leaves this area at this point, he goes back outside of the Holy of Holies, back to where he had slaughtered the bull previously. And we can imagine that there's a little bit of a sigh of relief from all those that are watching, all the onlookers. Because if he messed up, if he was struck down, if he was unclean, if he missed one little part of the ceremonial process, he could be struck down by God. And Israel's only hope for atonement for that whole year rested on this. So we can picture them kind of in, in silence as they walk into this, as he walks into the, the Holy of Holies, waiting for him to come out to see, is he going to come out? Is he not? Is he going to drop dead? Is he going to be able to, to save us? Is he going to be able to atone for our sins? So he goes out, he returns to the blood of the bull. Verse 14, he shall take some of that blood, sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, and also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Covered a little bit of this uh, during the message on the altar of incense. Uh, that's Exodus 30. Uh, briefly mentions that as well if you'd like to take a look. But Aaron takes the blood, sprinkles it on the east side, which the way the tabernacle and even later the temple was set up, the east side would have been actually the side right in front of him. He would have approached it right there. He was coming from the east towards the, the west, approaching God. You always uh, have this east to west movement as you approach God. So he would have sprinkled it on the top of the mercy seat. And then it says, uh, also in front of the mercy seat. 
Uh, most seem to believe that this was actually done on the floor, right in front of the, the actual ark itself. Mercy seat is on top of the ark. The blood is sprinkled there seven times with sort of a flick of the finger, but then also onto the floor. Now, it's uh, thought that the uh, blood on the seat itself was an atonement for the priest. Of course, he was supposed to make atonement for him and for his household. The blood on the floor was maybe to atone for the defilement of the most holy place, of the holy of holies, by the priest walking in. It would be quite literally the idea of covering your tracks, if you will. As you walk up to approach, he might have, again, this is a little bit of conjecture, but there's some, some evidence that seems to support this, that he would have actually sprinkled it on the seat, and maybe as he walked back out, he would be continuing to uh, place the blood over his footsteps, if you will, as he backs out of this place. Verse 15, he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. This is, by the way, the beginning of uh, the atonement for the sins of the people. So the atonement for the high priest is done. We're now moving into the atonement for the sins of the people. He shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it. And from the impurities of the sons of Israel, consecrate it. Now let's notice a few of the similarities and a few of the differences compared with the first offering, with the first atonement, if you will, that of the priests. The similarities is that the blood was taken inside the veil, that it was sprinkled on the mercy seat, and again, perhaps on the floor, uh, in front of the mercy seat, in front of the ark. Reading from another commentary, the object of this solemn ceremony was to impress the minds of the Israelites with the conviction that the whole tabernacle was stained by the sins of a guilty people. That by their sins, they had forfeited the privilege of the divine presence and worship, and that an atonement had to be made as the condition of God's remaining with them. The sins and shortcomings of the past year have polluted the sacred edifice, the expiation required to be annually renewed. The exclusion of the priests indicated their unworthiness and the impurities of their service. The mingled blood of the two victims being sprinkled on the horns of the altar indicated that the priests and the people equally needed atonement for their sins. But the sanctuary being thus ceremonially purified and the people of Israel reconciled by the blood of the consecrated victim, the Lord continued to dwell in the midst of them and to honor them with his gracious presence. And so the difference is that the blood was to be applied not only to the holy place, but also to the tent of meeting and also to the altar that is outside in the court. Verse 20, when he finishes atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting at the altar, he shall offer the live goat, the goat for Azazel. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, and he shall confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to their sins. 
He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all of their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. This is such an interesting picture. It sort of brings it to life for me, uh, this idea of actually touching the, the goat on the head. It's obviously quite up close and personal, but the priest confesses the sins of the people, all of the sins of the people, the whole nation, onto the head of this goat. Now, this was supposed to take place in one afternoon, but I started thinking, He's supposed to confess all of the sins of the whole nation of Israel? Confessing my sins for a day would take an afternoon, most likely. But the entire nation of Israel, a whole year, confessed unto the head of the goat. And the goat would then be led off into the wilderness, uh, again, symbolically carrying away the sins of the people. He would be cast off. The problem was, there's some record that the goat would come back sometimes. You may have heard this. They'd lead it out some way, and the goat would somehow find its way back into the city, maybe even up into the temple court area. That's a bit of a problem, is it not? Don't we sometimes try to get rid of our sin, maybe cast it off, and it just keeps coming back? That ever happened? Maybe it's just me? Now I see some smiles. No one's raising their hand, but they're smiling and chuckling. So during the second temple period, there, there's records that this had happened, and what they decided to do is they would take the goat uh, 10 miles. There's at least one recorded evidence. They'd take the goat 10 miles out into the wilderness. But sometimes the goat would still come back. So they actually decided that they would push the goat off of a cliff, literally, that they would take it. They would actually lead him backwards to the edge of a cliff, 10 miles outside, push him off of the cliff, just to make sure that the sin did not return back to the camp. Verse 23, then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. A quick side note, uh, really regarding all of the priestly garments, um, but those of the high priests specifically, um, they weren't washed. These garments were not washed. They would be stained with blood, and that was to be a constant reminder of the sacrifice. Again, I kind of chuckled earlier about, you know, having an Italian meal and getting a little marinara on the shirt. But again, imagine having your entire white garment soiled uh, with the blood of slaughter, the blood of sacrifice. And once they were unfit for use, um, I, I don't know what that would look like at that point, but apparently there was some sort of a time when they said, yeah, that's just a little bit too much blood on the garment. We're, we're going to retire it. For the regular priest, they would actually cut it up and they would use it for the wicks on the golden lampstand. They would actually use the priestly garments for that. But for the high priest alone, they would actually take it and there's some records that they would, they would literally bury it or leave it out somewhere in the middle of nowhere to make sure that no one else would ever wear that specific garment again. Verse 24, he shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up and smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Then afterward, he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water, and then afterward he shall come into the camp. 
quite a lengthy and detailed process, was it not? Now, the rest of this chapter is actually picked up um, almost word for word, and uh, not word for word, but we'll say idea for idea. Um, all of the commands are picked up in Leviticus 23. Um, so we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll turn back there and we'll look at how the people are commanded to observe this day. Verse 28 says, you shall not do any work on this same day. It is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there's any person who will not humble himself on this day, he will be cut off from amongst his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you. And you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening. From evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Verse 27 tells us that it is a holy convocation. We looked at this uh, when we went over the Feast of Trumpets. It is a mikra chodesh, a holy assembly, a holy gathering of God's people together to celebrate and to honor the specific day. And it says you shall humble, the Hebrew word is anah, you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. Anah means to afflict, to oppress, to humble, of course, or to bow down. And it can carry the idea of afflicting one's self purposefully, purposely afflicting oneself. Now, in modern-day Judaism, this command has been interpreted to mean fasting. And the Jewish people fast from sundown to sundown for this entire day, complete fast of food, many fast from water, of course, people with health conditions and certain things, there's restrictions that the rabbis would write. It's like a uh, get out of fasting free card. You know, if you have certain, certain health conditions or something, uh, they could write you a little doctor's note, a rabbi's note, I guess. But this fast was actually the only commanded fast in scripture. There's other fasts in scripture that were done to celebrate or commemorate certain things. But this is the only time in scripture that we see a fast actually commanded by God. And this is by far the most solemn day in Israel. I mentioned this a little bit uh, at the beginning. Uh, some of the other holidays are, are definitely more joyous and festive. This is very somber. Imagine 10 days of awe, repentance, prayer, introspection. 10 days of that. That's quite a bit as it is. And then you're going to take a whole day after that to fast for 24 hours from food and water. There's a lot of cranky people this time of year uh, in Israel. I've never had the chance to actually be uh, there during this time, during this festival. I was there right after. I have been in Israel in parts of the, uh, the Muslim parts of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's very quick lesson for you. Jerusalem's divided into four quarters. There's a, a Jewish quarter, a Muslim quarter, a Christian quarter, and an Armenian quarter. And you know that Muslims fast for an entire month during Ramadan. And when you go to Israel, if you're there and you happen to be in the Muslim quarter, it's not a nice time of year to be there. There's a lot of cranky people because they are hungry. They fast the whole month uh, as, long as, uh, as long as the sun is up. So um, they fast all day long. It's a very interesting thing. Um, but this is really a, a very important time for the Jewish people, and it's really a great time for us as believers to maybe share with them. These are, again, days of introspection, prayer, repentance. Maybe they're open to a little bit more spiritual things and spiritual ideas during times like this. Along with fasting, a lot of the modern-day observances center around works, unfortunately. Um, just like the Feast of Trumpets, ever since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there are no longer any sacrifices. You can see that this day involves entirely around a sacrifice. So what are we to do without a temple? 
not what are we to do, what are the Jewish people to do without a temple ever since 70 AD? Well, they decided to change the traditions a little bit. There's a, a record of a rabbi uh, during the destruction of the, the second temple, during this exact time period, around 70 AD. Um, and as he was walking uh, amongst Jerusalem, he said, woe to us that this, the place where the iniquities of Israel were atoned for is laid waste. Basically, we have no hope. We can't atone for our sins anymore. What are we going to do? And a famous rabbi, Yohanan ben Zakkai, replied, do not be grieved. We have another means of atonement as effective as this, acts of loving kindness. For it is written, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's Hosea 6, 6. And so from the words of that one rabbi, uh, they were so esteemed that Israel decided to take on basically a, a whole new way of celebrating. And good deeds became the part of this celebration. Prayers, repentance, of course, but fasting, charity, good works. The Jewish people have really largely neglected the word of God and what it says about sacrifice. More importantly, we know that they've rejected the son of God. They've neglected his word and they've rejected his son. They don't see it and they have missed it. Their eyes are, are, are closed. A veil has been placed over them. Fasting and good works, we know, provide no path to salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, so that no one can boast. Perhaps people have accepted an idea of sin as a minor infraction, where a day of fasting is seen as sufficient to get right with God. But is this acceptable to God as the offended party? He states that sin is catastrophic to his honor, to our well-being, and to our relationships. Since his view on sin hasn't changed, our view on sacrifice shouldn't either. And thus the topic of blood can seem bizarre or even primitive. But sacrifices are meant to teach us the real horror of sin, and that is that sin kills. Verse 29 says, If there is any person who will not humble himself on this day, he shall be cut off from his people. The only way that we can come to true humility is, is not through fasting. Fasting isn't the humility of humbling ourselves. There are benefits to fasting, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. There are our brothers and sisters over at Beth Shalom, Messianic believers in Yeshua, actually observe the fast today uh, in celebration of this. There's nothing wrong with that. It can be used as, as a time to draw close to God. But that fasting is never a way that you will earn your salvation. That is never the way that that will happen. The only way is not to come to humility through fasting, but to come to Christ in humility. We exhibit humility when we accept the atonement of God by our faith in him. Now, the last two verses of this section deal with the Sabbath. As for any person who does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you. You shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening. Now, We've done a little bit of teaching on this recently. Two Sundays ago, of course, we talked a little bit about Sabbath. Also did a message, I don't know, a month or so back, two months back, I can't remember, time flies, uh, called The Sign of the Sabbath. And that was in Exodus 31. I'd encourage you to go back to listen to that if you haven't, but hopefully you were here and understand a little bit more about the idea of why the Sabbath was important, why God instituted it. So we've looked at uh, all of the uh, commands for the sacrifice for the priests. We looked at the commands for the people 
Now let's look at the future fulfillment. Let's look for Messiah in this feast and the future fulfillment that we will realize when he comes again. So prophetically on this day, this is when the nation of Israel will finally realize that Jesus is their Messiah. Isaiah speaks of a future event like this. Isaiah 25, verse 9, And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And the Jewish people will realize that their Messiah has come. Paul, speaking about his fellow countrymen, the Jewish people, says this in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 to 16, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it was removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. There are several other uh, scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about the idea of a veil being placed over their eyes. And Paul picks this up here and he says that to this day, there is a veil that is over their eyes, a veil that is over their heart that won't let them see Christ, won't let them acknowledge him. Interestingly, Paul serves as kind of a, a picture for us as to the entire nation of Israel. You're familiar with his uh, conversion from Saul to Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. He meets the Lord on the road and he becomes blind. And he makes his way into Damascus and Acts 9, 17 to 18 says this. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember those. Regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And as he regained his sight, he got up and he was baptized. Filled with the Spirit was the means that he was able to have the, the scales fall from his eyes. The veil removed, if you will. He was able to see that Jesus was the Messiah. The man whom he was persecuting was the Messiah. And on the future day of atonement that we look forward to, the veil will be taken away from the eyes of the Jewish people. Zechariah 12.10 tells us this. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And just like Paul, the scales will fall from their eyes, as it were. They will realize, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will see, and they will mourn, and they will repent. John confirms this in Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Speaking again of this, this future day, the prophet Jeremiah um, foretells us a few things. In Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34, we see verses very familiar to us all. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will create a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. This new covenant that was mentioned is far, far better than the old one, uh, namely in two ways. One, that the law would not be written on tablets of stone, but they would be written on tablets of the heart, of the hearts of man. They will all know the law. But most importantly, we're told that the Lord will forgive their iniquity and their sins will be remembered no more. When we think of the idea of the Day of Atonement, remember that the Day of Atonement was a covering. Their sins weren't removed. Their sins weren't done away with. Their sins were a covering. It was a temporary solution to really a a big problem, an eternal problem, but a temporary solution. The idea we can sort of liken to a credit card. Go to a restaurant, go to a store. The bill comes and you swipe the credit card. It's covered, correct? But at some point, the bill's going to come in the mail, the credit card bill, and you're going to have to pay it. When that card was swiped, you didn't take money out of your pocket. No money left your bank account. But it was covered, temporarily covered. That was the old covenant. But the new covenant is Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Greek word is a word, airo, and it literally means to lift up or, or to take off. Our sins aren't just covered. They're taken away. The burden has been lifted from our shoulders, if you will. That's the picture that we have here. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 say, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There's no atonement that is really necessary under the new covenant. What do you mean by that? Well, the Messiah was not just merely an atonement. He was the the propitiation for our sins. He came to do away with atonement. Atonement, covering, was no longer necessary because the sins are gone. The sins have been lifted off. The sins have been removed. Under the old covenant, the payment of sin was anticipated. Under the new covenant, it is realized. Under the old covenant, the sacrifices were provisional and they were recurring each year on the day of atonement. But under the new covenant, the sacrifice of Jesus's death was eternal and it was totally sufficient to pay all our debts. Under the old covenant, men's lambs could cover sin. But under the new covenant, as I mentioned, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And let us not forget that beyond being the sacrifice to us as that Lamb of God, the Messiah Jesus is our high priest. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews 9. We're going to read through this as we close. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, 
he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Skip down to verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once and the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So for us as Christians, as as Gentile believers in God, as most of us in this room I'm sure are, Today is a day of rejoicing. Today is not a day of solemnity. Today is not a day uh, that we need to walk around with our heads down, moping and, and wondering and, you know, just hoping, crossing our fingers, doing prayers and fasting and repentance in hopes that maybe we can appease this all-powerful God. That is not the case. Our sins are not just covered anymore. Our sins have been removed. They have been cast into the deep We just read that uh, actually in our our prayer meeting uh, a little bit before service. Uh, Ron led us through Micah 7, that our sins have been cast into the deep. That was actually the same idea that we talked about uh, two Sundays ago with the idea of the Tashlik service on Rosh Hashanah where, where observant Jews would go to a body of water and shake their pockets out, symbolic of the fact that their sins had been cast into the deep. And we know as well that as far as the east is from the west so far have our sins been removed from us and we have been redeemed, brothers and sisters, by the blood of the Lamb of God. In reference to an annual day of judgment that would happen, this idea of the books of life, praise the Lord that we know nothing of that. We know not an annual judgment, but we know one final judgment that is yet to come. But brothers and sisters, we know the outcome already. We don't have to wait in fear. We know the verdict, we know what will happen on that last day. We know that our sins have been paid in full. And we have hope. We have hope that our names are written, not in the book of life for the righteous or for the wicked or for the in-between, but the Lamb's book of life. And in there, it's eternal. The celebration this year is, is that you would hope that your name would be written just for one more year in the book. But we have assurance in the Lamb's book of life that our names have have been written in there before the foundations of the earth. The Hebrew scriptures tell us that God offered his son as a sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. And that sacrifice is the only means of salvation. It's not by works so that anyone may boast. So I pray that we would get that notion out of our mind that we would have all accepted that sacrifice for our sin in Jesus. I pray that you've accepted that. 
I pray that you come to know that. I pray that you can rejoice in that today. That today is a day of rejoicing. Today is a day truly of celebration. While most of the Jewish people see this as a solemn day, today is a day of celebration. Lord, thank you so much for uh, your precious word to us. Thank you for the beautiful fulfillment that we uh, have yet to see, Father, but we eagerly await that time. We look ahead to a time that you will come, that you will um, remove the veil from the eyes of the Jewish people, Lord, that they will come to know you, that they will come to realize that you are the Messiah. You are the one that has come. They're expecting Messiah to come for the first time, but we are in anticipation for you to come a second time. Lord, this free gift that you have given us is precious. Father, I pray that as we think of the idea of sin, the severity of it, the fact that sin has consequences and that sin kills, may we not take it lightly. Oh Lord, I pray that we would appreciate that precious sacrifice that you gave us and your son. And I pray that we would have faith in you, that we would have appropriated that sacrifice well. If that sacrifice is rejected, there's only one consequence. The wages of sin is death, and there is an eternal separation from you. But for all those that put their trust in you, for all those that put their faith in your son and his sacrifice, there is life forevermore. If you haven't made that uh, decision to trust, it's a prayer away. You may have heard that said before, but it's really more than that. It starts with that. It's as simple as that but it involves repenting and turning from your sin. It revolves turning to God, trusting in that sacrifice. Your sin has been covered. That work's already done. But you can now walk in newness of life through him if you appropriate that into your life and into your heart, Lord. So if there's anyone that hasn't prayed, I I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Maybe this would be a wonderful remarker on the day of atonement that this would be the day of salvation for that individual. If you need to recommit, if you need to turn and repent, maybe these past 10 days, the 10 days of awe have been something that uh, you've really reflected on and have decided that you do need to return to the Lord. Maybe you've wandered, maybe you've strayed a little bit. Let today be the day that you commit to come back. Let today be that, that idea of teshuva, of repentance, of turning from your sin and from your old life and turning towards God. Lord, would you bless and strengthen uh, this congregation, the believers here uh, in this room. Father, be with us, strengthen us as we um, walk out from here with a great hope, with a great confidence and a great assurance of your sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.